Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Julian Schnabel has in common with Dennis Hopper that he's an artist-turned-filmmaker. I mean, he's sort of made his... um, famous as a painter and is one of our greatest artists, but he, as you know, is an incredible film director, got an Academy Award nomination last year for directing The Diving Bell and The Butterfly. I know he's a friend of Dennis Hopper's, and uh, he's the perfect person to introduce him to you, and we're really thrilled that he's here tonight. I think he just got back from an art show in Florida, so we're glad that he's here with us in New York, where he belongs. Uh, So please welcome Julian Schnabel. It's been a long time. What are you doing? Thank you. Anyway, I'm very happy to be here. I mean, every day above ground is a good one. (laughs) Anyway, um, Dennis Hopper is my friend. And um, I don't know what they're doing with him here. No. Anyway, Dennis is my friend, and and we've been friends for not that long, actually. Probably only, what, 25 years or something, because it doesn't seem like very much anymore. But uh, I think Dennis is a great artist. Um, he does a lot of things. And now, sometimes that's confusing to people. Um, if people do too many things. I've had my problems with that also. Because uh, I'm not really an artist-turned-filmmaker. I'm a painter who made a couple of movies. Uh, but why would I even feel compelled to address that? Anyway, because I'm thinking about Dennis, who, in fact, is a great photographer, um, a great filmmaker, um, who has also supported so many other artists over the years. Um, I was talking, uh, we were talking earlier, I mean, he actually was generous enough to actually take pictures of all the other artists that were around um, him at the time, uh, before many people knew who they were, people like Andy Warhol and Jasper Johns and Bob Rauschenberg and Jim Rosenquist. And, um, and then... As time went on, he, there were, was whether it was Keith Haring or uh, Jean-Michel or me, or uh, he was always extremely supportive of other uh, artists, whether they were filmmakers or uh, whether it was Bruce Connor or George Herms or uh, so many people. He helped so many people. And when I was going to make Basquiat, um, I think the smallest role that Dennis ever had was Bruno Bischofberger in the film Basquiat. But immediately he said to a first-time director who was a painter, yeah, sure, just tell me where you want me to be. And uh, Dennis doing that encouraged other people, uh, other actors that were in the movie, to do the same. And really, he not only helped me get the movie made, 
when I was making the movie, he m made me think that I actually knew what I was doing. And later, after the movie was made, when we went to Venice with it, when there were difficult questions to answer that I couldn't answer, he'd answer them too. So, in fact, I didn't even make the movie, he did. <laughs> but uh, most of all, uh, you know, he's gone mad a few times. Uh, he was crazy. Um, and he came back, and if I was going mad, I would definitely want to call him because I think that he'd be able to bring me back somehow. And when I don't feel good, I call him. And um, I love Dennis, and uh, he's one of my best friends. And we've worked together on lots of things. And uh, there was a great line in The Prince of the City when uh, um, Treat Williams says, I may sleep with my wife, but I, I live with my partner. He's talking about his, he was a policeman in that movie. Anyway. So, I may sleep with my wife, but I live with Dennis Hopper. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, uh, I could actually talk about him for a long time because I've had the occasion to introduce him a few times. Every time, in fact, I'm the only person that will introduce him. <laughs> and that's why I'm here. I couldn't find anybody else. Now, anyway, Dennis, I love you very much. I think you'll have a great time hearing him say... Just keep your answer short. No. Anyway, thank you very much, Dennis Hopper. Don't keep your answers wow. short, first of all. <laughs> keep, you can keep your answers long. Surely. I want to thank you for being here. You're so busy this year. You do, you've got about four different movies, um, including Elegy, which we're going to see a little bit of. You're doing uh, voices for video games. You have a TV show, major um, exhibition at the Cinematheque Francaise, so of your artwork and work you've collected. So um, I don't know how you found the time to be here, even. <laughs> you seem incredibly busy these days. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's pretty short. Well, that's a short well you asked. <laughs> you actually asked me, and, and uh, somehow uh, I heard that Julian was going to give me this uh, award, so or whatever this is, I'm not sure what this is. I'm not sure what I'm doing here, really. Except it said Julian was going to be there, okay. so I showed up. No. We're going to. Okay, good. Well, here's yeah. your award. No, no, uh, I'm and, just. I'm, and, uh, I'm, 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 I'm half teasing. We're <laughs> Um, we're not going to do your entire life story, but I, I, but I, want to, I do want to hear Good. a little bit about... Um, I, want to hear a, <laughs> wow. I want to hear a little bit about um, the, the Kansas day, your sort of beginnings in uh, Dodge City, and I guess you moved to Kansas City. Could you talk a bit about the formative influences in the early days um, in, in person, both painting and film? I, is it true you studied... You actually took art lessons with Thomas Hart Benton, is that true? Well, not exactly, okay. but uh, I could probably get there. Okay. Uh, he came into a class that I was in at the Nelson Atkins uh, Museum that I took on Saturdays in Kansas City and uh, when I was a kid. And I'd studied with this uh, uh, watercolorist, Rocky Mountain watercolorist, when I was, uh, when I was uh, 
about eight or nine years old, and uh, my mother put me in this tap dancing class, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was in with all these girls, and I couldn't hack it, so she thought maybe watercolors would be better for me. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, yeah. So I was doing this little painting of uh, I had the rock and I and the river going by and the mountain and uh, the tree and you know so and I had done this uh, this painting quite a few times and uh, <clears throat> Mr. Benton came in and looked at it and said, "Kid, you know, you're not going to know what I'm saying right now." I was about uh, I guess I was about uh, I was probably twelve, mm-hmm. maybe eleven, twelve. He said, but someday you're going to have to get loose, get, get tight and paint loose. <laughs> so. But, uh, yeah, so it wasn't exactly studying with him. He just right. dropped okay. in on, you know, through the museum. Okay. And, yeah, yeah. But that's some pretty good advice. Yeah. But um, Kansas, uh, I was born right at the end of uh, the Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. 1936, and uh, I still had to probably three times a week, at least three times a week, wear a, a gas mask to school. Mm. Uh, and my grandmother would open the door and five inches of dirt would come in wow. uh, the farm. So it was, uh, I used to tell people the first light that I saw was in a movie theater. And I just wanted to know where they were making those movies and how to get out of Dodge. I was in right. Dodge City, Kansas. So that was a big part of your childhood was going to the, did you have a sort of big, Great old movie theater in, in town. We had uh, we had two movie theaters, uh, the Dodge and the Crown, mm-hmm. and uh, the Dodge was sort of uptown, and the Crown was uh, really ratty. And uh, they played uh, they played the singing cowboys, uh, a lot of uh, Roy Rogers, a lot of uh, Gene Autry. Every once in a while, Wild Bill Elliott. I loved him. I thought he was terrific. He had come along because he was a little more real to me than the others. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. but that was, uh, yeah, that's what I, my cultural background. Mm-hmm. But what was... Uh, <laughs> Marlon Brando, I understand. You saw Viva Zapata? Was that... Oh, that was quite a while later. Okay. Yeah. My father came back from the war. We left Kansas. My mother ran a swimming pool there. We went to Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, I lived there till I was uh, 13. Mm-hmm. The time I was about nine till I was 13. And uh, I started going to Nelson R. Atkins Museum on Saturdays and taking art classes. And, uh, but I used to go in and sketch the actors because I really wanted to be an actor. I really wanted to be in movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, I didn't know exactly what that meant, but uh, that, was, that was what I wanted to do. So... Uh, so we finally moved to California when I was 13. We moved to San Diego, California. And uh, I started acting at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego when I was 13. Uh, mm. And it was a semi-professional theater. And my first part was The Urchin in uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol. And then by the time I was like 16, uh, I won a scholarship to the National Shakespearean uh, festival, which would be really supposed to be in college, and I started mm-hmm. acting. Uh, they brought the uh, the great English Shakespearean directors who'd come to San Diego and work at the Old Globe during the summer, and I I would work for them. Hmm. Uh, and that and uh, and you did Shakespeare productions. <laughs> yeah, I, I played uh, Lorenzo and the Merchant of Venice, uh, hmm. 
Sebastian in Twelfth Night, Montana and Othello. Uh, yeah. <coughs> and, uh, and so what, what got you, what sort of helped you make the move, or how did you get from um, theater into movies? Wasn't there a detour through television that you did? Well, I, I, I actually started, uh, I was an apprentice at uh, La Jolla Playhouse, which was a professional theater where the movie stars came down and acted. And uh, I was an apprentice there, and I met uh, Dorothy McGuire. Her husband was John Swope, and he was, he was running the, uh, the theater, which David O. Selznick had started. So uh, I, uh, I invited Dorothy McGuire. I, I was just pulling curtain, cleaning toilets, and, uh, you know, mm. and uh, picking up props. But uh, I invited them to see me in a play. Uh, at the, uh, I was playing in, uh, Lorenzo and the Merchant of Venice. They came to that, and uh, then I asked for a letter of recommendation. And uh, I, so I came, when I graduated at 18 years old, I went to Los Angeles, and I uh, went under... Uh, well, I, I, uh, I had this letter, and I finally got an agent, and I, I got a small part as a, a ten-line part in the Cavalcade of America for... Uh, uh, Hal Roach Studios, which mm. is the one that made the old, two, the, all the Laurel like and the, Hardy yeah. and all, all those old. And so, anyway, that was it. And uh, then I got a part that I read for, uh, I got a lead in a, a television show called Medic. And uh, uh, Seven Studios uh, called the day after it screened and wanted to put me under contract. So uh, that was... Uh, January 7th, 1955. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I was 18 years was, old, and I, I right. went under contract with Warner Brothers. Okay. Well, that, at 55, of course, was a big year because it was the year of Rebel of Cause. Yeah. So, and... Uh, and that was my first picture. Okay. And it must have been a profound experience to, for your first picture to be working with... Yeah, well, it was also incredible because I, I came out... I thought I was the best young actor in the world. I think <laughs> anybody could even touch me. Well, so and I can... suddenly, I'm looking at James <laughs> Dean, and I've never seen anybody improvise before. Hmm. Everything I was doing was contrary to the method. Everything I did was preconceived. Every gesture, every line reading was all preconceived. That was the training about, at the Old Globe? I mean, that was how you were trained? That's Shakespeare. I yeah. Mean, which isn't that, I mean, you know. You don't improvise with Shakespeare. I didn't know, uh, <laughs> you know anything beyond that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was strange to see somebody suddenly doing things that weren't on the page. Yeah. Uh, blocking themselves in the movies. It's, it, was, uh, hmm. it was quite an experience, yeah. Was that something that Nicholas Ray, uh, was that part of his method also? To he allow encouraged, that? yes. He, he encouraged, encouraged that. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. And it was a great... Uh, it was a great wrong. And, and you had a uh, friendship. What was, I mean, you had a uh, friendship with him, with Dean? Or? I had a, <coughs> I had a, uh, a teacher-student relationship. Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, Jimmy was really older than I was. I mean, he, he, we yeah. thought of him as a kid, but he was, yeah. he was 24, 25 years old. The one year that he, I, we worked together the last year of his life. So, um, 
and I was 18 and 19, and that's yeah. a big, big age difference. Yeah. And he was in love with uh, Pierre Angeli and <laughs> Ursula Andres, and he was off, you know, boogieing, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and like I, uh, but we were together like, you know, uh, five, six days a week. Uh, yeah. We did Rebel Without a Cause, and then we did Giant. And then he died, unfortunately, two weeks before we finished Giant. Right. But uh, we, were on, uh, we were on Giant for six months. We were on Rebel for about three. So that was, yeah. And was it after that that you, you, you changed your approach? Didn't you then study, go and study with yeah, well, I, went, I, went, I, 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 I threw him into a car one night on Rebel Without a Cause in the Chicky Run, and I said, uh, I told him, I said, you know, I thought I was the best actor in the world, very honestly, and <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what you're doing, you know. <laughs> so uh, what do I do? Do I go to New York? Do I study with Strasbourg? What do I do? You know? Right. And so he said, uh, no, 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 Strasbourg, you're too sensitive for that. Strasbourg will... Grind you up and throw you out. He said, uh, "No, you just got to start doing things and not showing them. You got to stop having preconceived ideas. You've got to live in the moment in a moment-to-moment reality. Uh, you've got to drink the drink and smoke the cigarette. Don't act drinking the drink. Don't act smoking the cigarette. And uh, and these will be very difficult when you're on stage or when you're like you know when you're uh, in the movies. But uh, just to do the simplest things because you'll be aware of them." And once you learn how to relax and get through that and live in a moment-to-moment reality and don't have any presupposed ideas about what's going to happen next in this scene, then, then that's, that's the way you should work because you'll be able to work with your emotions and so on and so on. Anyway, that's it. So, so during Rebel, um, you know, I started to try to work. Uh, it was a little easier because everything was improvised, or a lot of it was improvised. When we got to Giant, though, Stevens wasn't into <laughs> improvisation. So, uh, right. so like, you know, uh, so Dean used to, when he got old in the movie, he had me come and watch him because he wanted to know if I thought he was really old, you know, because he was playing a guy 70, in his 70s, whatever. And, uh, yeah. and then he would come and he would, he, would watch, he would watch scenes that I did and he did critique them. And that was, uh, that was our relationship. And then he died, and then I came and I studied with uh, Strasbourg did, yeah. for five years here. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. And, and how were you sort of, because you were, you were doing some movies with some real sort of old school directors, like Henry Hathaway. Yeah, well, Hathaway, yeah. A, told this story so many times. Yeah. It's like, you know, you tell a joke, you know, and then pretty soon after you've told it, people come up and say, tell it again. About the 20th time you've told it, it's just not funny anymore. It's amazing how that works. Uh, Yeah, well, Mr. Hathaway. See, so far, so good. Actually, I loved Mr. Hathaway. I know this is strange, but um, yeah. Okay, so I guess we're not going to hear the story. No, no. I okay. Just, uh, so, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, he, uh, <clears throat> he was an incredible guy. He was great to have dinner with. Mm-hmm. He was funny. He was charming. On the set, he was a nightmare. <laughs> what the fuck? You know? And if you really wanted to piss him off, all you had to do was put a paper cup down. 
there are no paper cups in westerns. Where did I paper cup on the center? Okay. I mean, he would have an extra hand the reins to John Wayne 70 times. Right. You know, just to make the guy so nervous that it was, you know, because he couldn't tell him, be nervous for me, you know. Uh, yeah, interesting man. But uh, I worked for him actually more than I worked for any other director. I worked for him three times right. after this, uh, after he blackballed me. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So did, did that, lit- I mean, literally, um, was it then hard for you? You had your entry in, in sort of the classic... Hollywood studio system, um, but then how did you kind of find your way after that? Because you were sort of drawn towards... Uh, well, like, you know, I mean, Hathaway had a school mom approach. He gave you every line reading. He gave you every gesture. He gave you everything. And if you didn't do it, you were in another person's movie, very honestly. The films I did with him uh, until the last two, which I did what he said, uh, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't very good in the first one, very mm. honestly, because I wasn't in his movie. I was in somebody else's. I was in my movie, I guess. Mm. But, um, but anyway, uh, the man never moved his camera, hardly ever laid a dolly track, mm. did any of that. He wanted you to move in front of the camera, but he couldn't tell you that, so he gave you ridiculous kind of motions and stuff because you were now the moving object. Yeah. <laughs> And he would give you line readings, every line reading, when to pick up the glass, when to put down the glass, so on. And now I'm trying to, like, I've just come, left James Dean, and, the, and now I'm going to, out on my own, and now I'm going to, like, not have any preconceived ideas, and I'm not going to, like, you know. So we had a very hard time. Hmm. Now, hard time. Uh, in... Uh the first clip we have is from a film, an independent film that you did in 1961 um, in California, director Curtis Harrington, who had really done kind of short avant-garde films. This is an early feature film. Why don't we just see um, a scene from this, from Night Tide. We'll see a very young, adorable Dennis Hopper. <laughs> I told you oh, about you can, myself. You can what about see you? It right here, too. <laughs> Me, I'm a member of the U.S. Navy. <laughs> uh, you really want to know? Yes. Well, my mother, uh, my father left my mother and I when I was very young. So I became very close to my mother. And I've always wanted to see the world, and I never had a chance to. I couldn't. And my mother fell ill and died. So I figured the easiest way to get out of Denver, Colorado was to join the Navy, see the world. But I haven't seen any of it yet. You will? I hope so. Yeah, we made, we made that movie for $28,000. Wow. Curtis Harrington, myself. And, uh, yeah, Curtis was Jerry Wald. Jerry Wald was a very big producer at 20th Century Fox, and uh, Curtis was his uh, assistant. And uh, Curtis and I have been friends for some time. He did a lot of uh, experimental movies in the early days with um, I, I, uh Hollywood Babylon. Uh, oh, Kenneth Anger. Kenneth Anger, and he were, went, actually went to high school together. Hmm. 
and they made their first films together. And so I'd uh, I'd known Curtis for quite a while, and he came, and it was the first film that he directed and uh, right. he'd written. And, and tell us a bit about the sort of mix of things you were doing at the time, because you uh, we haven't talked about your photography yet, um, and you were in in the sort of art world, and you you um, around this time, uh, Andy Warhol came out to California for one of his first major art shows, and you did a film with him called Tarzan and Jane Regan. <coughs> Sort of. Uh, I was yeah. an abstract expression. Well, first of all, you know these cross right. cross connections of painting, <laughs> photography, right. blah blah blah. I was very fortunate to go into contract to Warner Brothers when I was 18 years old, and I didn't have to bust tables anymore, and I didn't have to work in a construction gang, and I didn't have to do that stuff. And it allowed me the possibility of leading a cultural life, and so I didn't have to stop painting which I was doing in high school. Right. I didn't have to stop taking photographs. I didn't have to put on a suit and tie and go be something <laughs> else. You know, I could continue what I was doing. And so I just continued. It wasn't like, wasn't like I thought, and besides I'm a middle-class farm boy from Dodd City, Kansas, I thought that like being an artist was acting and making films and painting and writing poetry and Whatever you know, if I could have played an instrument, I would have done that. I mean, it just seems to be all part of it. Uh, and you know, especially if you're going to direct movies, I think you should certainly know all those things yeah. on some level. So anyway, um, only until like you know, the last thirty years have I heard about this cross disciplines and right. uh, whatever. Anyway, yeah. where were we before I went on that rant? Well, I was just asking what you were doing around that time. You oh, gave a sense. in the early '60s uh, when you were making. This oh well, film okay, then... so. I was an abstract expressionist. Yeah. And uh, I went into the Ferris Gallery, Irving Blum and uh, Walter Hopps had started this yeah. gallery some years before. Uh, Walter had Keenholz had started it with Wallace Berman. And, okay. So I came in, it was 1962, and I came into the gallery, and everybody had been talking about the return to reality. What is the return to reality? out of abstract expressionism. When is it going to happen? We were all third-generation abstract expressionists. (laughs) So uh, they had looked at the Bay Area figurative painters in uh, David Parks and Nathan Oliveira and uh, Deben Korn, and and they were making some good paintings, but it didn't look like anything new to me. It looked more like they were going back and using abstract expressionist terms, but now they were working with the figure. And, and I thought, well, Soutine did this before mm. we went totally abstract. It wasn't something that I felt was new. And I walked into Irv, Irving, uh, I walked into the gallery, and uh, Irving said, Dennis, I want to show you something. And he brought two slides, and one was a soup can, mm. and one was a cartoon. <laughs> and one was Andy, and one was Roy. Right. And... Uh, he said, what do you think? And I went crazy. I started wow. jumping up and down. I said, that's it. That's it. That's the return to reality. That's, that's, that's it. And then he took me out and back, and he showed me a bronze light bulb by Jasper, and he showed me a paint can, yeah. the Jasper, a bronze paint can that Jasper had painted with the paintbrushes in it. I went, oh my God. He said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, uh, nothing. He said, well, let's go to New York. So we went to New York, and <laughs> I was fortunate enough to go in to see all of Andy's masterpieces. And Andy had his first show. The Soup Can Show was at the Ferris Gallery. You bought Irving one? Blum. Did you buy one? Well, I didn't buy I bought one. Actually, actually uh, Irving t- likes to tell the story that I bought one out of his thing. But, but actually, it was Monty Factor and Donald Factor 
and the Betty Asher bought out of the show, and they had to return them because, because uh, the Museum of Modern Art, I just saw them yesterday, because <laughs> uh, Irving wanted them all back. I bought mine from John Weber. Uh, Irving was selling his for, for, for $100, and, uh, and I went down to the Dwan Gallery, and John Weber was sitting there, and he had a, a, a soup can, the same on oil, you know, over his desk, and I said, I said, how much is that, John? Is that for sale? He said, $75. I said, deal. <laughs> yeah, because I thought, well, you know, I got a $25, you know. Right. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I bought The Sinking Sun by Roy Lichtenstein on that trip for $1,100. Hmm. And then I was in Paris, and I, I saw the... the uh, International Herald Tribune. I opened it up, and there was the painting, sold for seventeen million eight hundred sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> wow! <laughs> well, I lost it in a divorce, and so, yeah. <laughs> actually, it's actually rather funny. I bought it for eleven hundred dollars. My ex-wife sold it to Irving for for three thousand. He sold it to his partner Hellman for six thousand. Hellman. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, that was my excursion yeah. into like, you know, sort of pop art. And then like, you know, the Deschamps, uh, the Deschamps opening uh, is first retrospective that Walter Hopps gave in, in Pasadena in 1963. Uh, that was a major moment uh, for all of us. And like the New York artists, Jasper and Rauschenberg and you know, and uh, and um, the LA artists and everybody uh, uh, merged there and uh, got a good look of everybody. Yeah. Roche and so on. <laughs> and the film, the film that you did with Warhol, Tarzan and Jane Regained, sort of was was one of his very first, if not his first movie. Yeah, what year was that? Sixty four. No, it was like 63, 62 or sixty three. Sixty three. Yeah, sixty three. Yeah, it was his first, I believe, first film. Taylor Mead <laughs> and Patty Oldenburg, Klaus Oldenburg. And um, were you getting um, a, a bug to make films? You were. It was to go from to into directing might have started to seem like a, a natural thing for you because you were so involved in photography. Well, you know, I I, uh, I never thought of directing in the theater because it didn't uh, it didn't seem necessary because pretty soon they were going to leave you alone and you were going to be. <laughs> You know, but uh, the first day I was on a movie set, uh, I realized, uh, I wanted to know who that guy was. Right. <laughs> who's uh, telling you everything and telling you where the camera goes and yeah. seems to be running a yeah, big show. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I started thinking about it. And also, I, I really wanted to direct a movie before I was 25 because that's when Orson had made uh, Citizen Kane. But I couldn't quite accomplish that. I was here studying. So... <laughs> So well, I was 31 when I made Easy Run. Okay, so we have a scene from that, and um, so anyhow, let's show that, and we'll talk a little bit about Easy Rider. Yeah. No, we've done it, we've done it. We're rich, Wyatt. 
<laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we did it, man. We did it. We did it. <laughs> We're rich, man. We're retired in Florida now, mister. <clears throat> you know, Billy? We blew it. What? <laughs> what, what, what? That's what it's all about, man. I mean, like, you know. I mean, you go for the big money, man, and then you're free. You dig? <laughs> we blew it. Good night, man. At the break of noon Shadows even the silver spoon A handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand, you know too soon There is no sense in trying Threats they bluff with scorn Suicide remarks are torn From the fool's gold mouthpiece A hollow horn Please wasted words Prove to warn That he not busy being born Is busy dying Temptation page flies out the door You follow, find yourself at war Watch waterfalls of pity roar You feel to moan, but unlike before You discover that you just be one more person crying So don't fear when you hear A foreign sound to your ear It's all right, Ma I'm only sighing. Okay. <laughs> we won't give away the ending. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so there's great craft there in the, I mean, I wanted to show a bit of the, um, what you were doing both with the photography of the landscape and also the editing, the kind of cutting and moving back and forwards at the same time. Um, but you were also, Inventing uh, the influence of this film is, is um, profound because it showed a new way of making films for Hollywood. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde brought about a lot of changes, but that was really made within the system, and this was made in ways independently. Yeah, it was. Uh, what well, was the first? Uh, I mean, Cassavetes had been working independently, you know, but yeah. the problem was you couldn't get your films distributed. Yeah. I mean, we made Night Tide for, for uh, $28,000, and it was on Time Magazine, 10 movies to see that year, right. and uh, we couldn't get it in a theater because we didn't have an IA bug. So, uh, so uh, what happened was that uh, Bert Schneider's father, Bert Schneider gave us the money to make the movie. Uh, his father was Abe Schneider, who was chairman of the Board of Columbia Pictures. 
So uh, when we finished the movie, uh, which we made for $340,000, uh, Mr. Schneider uh, uh, paid the unions uh, uh, some money, I think $25,000, and uh, they got, we got an IA bug. We'd made it with the NABIT union, the television union, but it wasn't recognized by the Teamsters. So, hmm. so uh, And they were the projectionists and control, you know, whatever. So anyway, that's the way we were distributed. We got distributed. Uh, I could have made it independently, and uh, never, no one would really ever seen it probably. Mm-hmm. And, and what was it? What was it like directing this? I mean, there are uh, reports that you were kind of wild in the set um, as a director. Um, no, well, I was wild on the set in New Orleans because <laughs> there wasn't a set. Right. Uh, Peter had the wrong month for New Orleans for Mardi Gras. <laughs> when were you and, uh, we're not down there in February. And I took a bunch of friends with sixteen millimeter cameras down, and I went from a Go project to to. Uh, proving myself in New Orleans and Mardi Gras. And that's amazing material. And I told nobody to shoot film unless I told them to shoot film. And Mm. every time I turned around, somebody was shooting film, and Mm. I was freaking out and and, uh, yelling about how I was going to win con and, like, you know, where were those lights that I asked for and blah, 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 Uh blah. So uh, my my ex-brother-in-law and uh, Peter started recording me. Mm. And... uh, so after the five days of a nightmare, and I finally lost my whole crew. I ended up shooting the cemetery scene, just myself, Les Pine, a cinematographer, one sound person, and the actor and actor, and the uh, uh, Tony Basil, Karen Black, and and Peter. And it was raining, and it was interesting. So uh, I came <laughs> back with uh, I think sixty hours of film. Just for that sequence? 16 yeah. millimeter, yeah. But <laughs> during that period, uh, then uh, the recordings then went to Bert Schneider and Jack Nicholson, and, they, and Peter said, I'm going to give you back the 25000 that that uh, we spent doing this uh, thing, and uh, Dennis is not, you know, he obviously can't direct this movie, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so uh, Bert uh, listened to the tapes, and he said, he says he wants to win Khan. <laughs> And uh, what, what were the, where were those lights that he asked for? Hmm. And, well, he sounds a little upset. <laughs> but, you know, I hired him to direct this movie, and I'm going to go with it. Hmm. So, you know, uh, that was the way we started the film. Except the day before we started shooting, uh, unfortunately, my brother-in-law and Peter stole half my points. And, uh, hmm. and uh they pulled me into the office and told me that and said, now are you going to quit? And I said, no, I'm going to see you on the set in the morning. So we started the movie that way, and I think I made him look really good and um, yeah. looks like Captain America. <laughs> and, uh, no, he does. And, uh, yeah. and I'm very proud of the movie. And Laszlo Kovacs at the AFI about uh, just before he died, we had a show Easy Rider, the new digital print, and... Uh, we shot the thing in five weeks, by the way. Mm. We went all the way across country. There was never any arguments after that. Mm. And if there were, I won them. <laughs> so, uh, and we went, uh, went all the way across country in five weeks. He said it was the best organized film he'd ever shot. Mm. So, now, then there were problems. Then, then I come back with like, uh, well, 60 hours and uh, probably more like 80 hours of film. 
and I haven't seen any daily, so it took me a year to edit it. Hmm. And there's a lot of music in this movie, and the music is really the story. It's really the lyrics of the music is really a story. But I didn't cut the film to music. I cut the film to visuals. Uh, Orson Welles had said that, you know, editing is really easy. Just take your best shots, you know? <laughs> but, and also, like, I was very into Bruce Conner. And Bruce mm-hmm. Conner made these great experimental films. And so I was interested in the idea of, of the cutting. And also, that dissolve thing that I do back and forth, uh, I, I was so naive, I thought that, that you, couldn't, you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't superimpose one image over, lap dissolve one image over right. another, or you'd never win con. You had to direct, <laughs> you had to direct cut your movie to win con. This was, uh, so yeah, that was uh, it. And the music uh, I heard on the radio as I was uh, in during that year, all the music that I uh, used in the movie. And I wanted to be like a time capsule that uh, except at the time. I didn't yeah. know how, what a profit I would be, that, uh, that all the money would be put in the gas tank and the beautiful chrome machine was blowing up by the side of the road. I hope this is, can, we can turn this oh, yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're in. Right. Um, and, and you came up with also this idea of these uh, flash cuts forward, not just the cutting like we just saw, but having um, sort of flash forwards throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. that was so I wouldn't superimpose, so yeah. I could win con. <laughs> I've never you, seen when, anybody ever use it again. <laughs> um, and, and how do you look at this, this period of, um, which has really been kind of romanticized lately and really seen as a, um, a golden age for Hollywood, this period that really started with Easy Rider and went through the, the 70s, where there were... Um... Well, I mean, after Easy Rider, they thought that everybody, anybody who rode a bicycle and uh, was delivering a script probably could direct a movie, except right. for me. Right. <laughs> um, we're going to um, look now... We're going to jump, jump cut forward now to Apocalypse Now, to... Um, ah. 1979, the end of the 70s. So let's just run that sequence. <laughs> I'm an American! Yeah! An American civilian. Hi, Yanks. Hi. American. American civilian. It's all right. And you got the cigarettes, and that's what I've been dreaming of. Chef. Who are you? Mm. Who are you? <laughs> I'm a photojournalist. I've covered the war since 64. I've been in Laos, Cambodia, Nam. Ah, uh, baby. I'll tell you one thing. This boat is a mess, man. Woo! Mm-hmm. Who are all these people? Yeah, well, they think you've come to, uh, to take him away. And I hope that isn't true. Take who away? Him. Colonel Kurtz. These are all his children, man, as far as you can see. Hell, man, out here, we're all his children. Could we, uh, talk to Colonel Kurtz? Hey, hey man, you don't, uh, you don't talk to the Colonel, uh, um, well, when you listen to him, um, uh, the man's enlarged my mind, uh, 
Uh, he's a poet warrior in the, in the classic sense. Uh, I mean, sometimes he'll, uh, well, you say hello to him, right? And uh, he'll just walk right by you and uh, he won't even notice you. And then some, suddenly he'll grab you and he'll, he'll throw you in a corner and he'll say, do you know that if is the middle word in life? If you can keep your head when all about you're losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you. I mean, I'm no, I, I can't, I'm a little man, I'm a little man. He's, he's a great man. Uh, uh, I should have been a pair of ragged claws uh, scuttling across floors of silent seas. I mean... Stay uh, with the boat. Uh, hey, don't go any, hey, don't go without me, okay? <laughs> I want to get a picture. <laughs> There was no ending to the script. Right. <laughs> so uh, uh, we uh, did a lot of improv. And was it the... You do some scenes. I mean, you have some screen time with Brando. Is that the first time that you... Well, I didn't have any screen time. Well, I had like screen one, time with yeah. him, but we worked separately. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, okay. He... Uh, so you were cut together. Yeah. He, yeah. Uh, he insisted upon doing his... And then me coming in the next night and doing mine. Right. And then him coming back and doing his. Why was that? And then I'm yeah. coming back because we would listen to each other. Yeah. And that's the way he wanted to do it. Mm. And I was in the outer hall and he's in the other room. Mm. And uh, so when you see him, and even from my shot, it's a double. And, uh, yeah, and at the time it really pissed me off. And uh, <laughs> I'm so happy he did it that way. Because hmm. I would have been intimidated by him. Hmm. I wouldn't have been able to go through my dialectic physics uh, and landing on various planets and so on. I don't think he was around. Uh, but uh, it was amazing. Uh, uh, Francis, uh, Francis was amazing. We'd write uh, these things in the morning and then uh, just start improvising off of them. Like the scene that we just saw, was that sort of... Was that's that totally improv? improvised. Yeah. Yeah. You can keep your head when all about you. <laughs> a pair of ragged claws cutting across floors of silent seas. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, not the... The middle word in life is if. Yeah. Uh, these are hopperisms. <laughs> Didn't you do poetry read- reading in a talent contest at a very young age? To yeah, right, that? exactly. That's where it's coming from, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he starts doing he starts doing the Hollow Man. <laughs> I get brand, oh, it's funny. It's great. It's and great. and um, what did this film mean in terms of your career? One often when when your career is talked about is in terms of like the series of comebacks that you have. But you've done like you've done about three hundred movies, so it's not like you've stopped well, it, working. Well, that was wonderful. But I went directly from. Uh, from Apocalypse Now to to uh, Vim Vendors in Germany, and we made the American, American friend. friend, and then yeah. we opened the New York Film Festival. That yeah. was uh, that was uh, good, right? And I think Francis was still editing mm-hmm. uh, Apocalypse. He must have because been I introduced yeah. Vim to Francis, hmm. and they started working together. <laughs> they did Hamlet together, right? yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you did. Um, a series of very interesting, um, important movies and great movies in the, in the 80s, sort of back-to-back again. Um, we'll see Blue Velvet a, a, in a minute, but I wanted to first see something, a uh, um, scene from River's Edge, because you did these two movies that, that were made, I think made in the same year, mm-hmm. um, and really great performances. River's Edge, um, not as well-known. It's, it's directed by Tim Hunter. But my favorite. Okay. Yeah. 
Great. So um, let's look at that then. Let's look at that first, the scene from River's Edge. Hey, look. Hey, 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 hey. Don't do that, man. What's the matter? Is she allergic to cats? Cats have claws. Come on. Go get that cat. Get it out of here, man. No. Let it explore. You're really attached to this thing, aren't you? I saw you two dancing. Hey, Feck. Are you, you know, are you a psycho or something? No, I'm normal. She's a doll. I know that. Right, Ellie? <laughs> but you, you killed the girl, right? Are you a psycho? Yeah, probably. What other excuse do I have? <laughs> you were a biker. Yeah, years ago. Whew, man. I ain't so much pussy in those days. My beard looked like a glazed donut. Is that when you lost your leg? Motorcycle accident. Whole gang ditched me and kept on riding. My leg was right out in the middle of the street. I remember lying in the gutter, all bleeding and shaking, staring at my leg right next to a beer can. And I remember thinking, that's my leg. I wonder if there's any beer in that can. I also remember thinking, maybe they can sew that leg back on and then there comes the ambulance and runs right over all of it. Wasted that leg. what do I need it for, huh? I got another one, right? I figure once you start fighting, you're always defending yourself. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a Tim Hunter film. Yeah, and I yeah. started out the year doing. Uh, I'd only been sober uh, two months, and I did Blue Velvet, and then I went directly to Indianapolis and did Hoosiers, and then I went from Hoosiers and I did directly and did this. Wow! And that was my first three performances. Yeah, all came sober. out. I'm thinking, <laughs> how long were you not sober? Hmm? What, when you say you were so, you how long had you not been sober? How, how old was I? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, 50, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I remember when I was 18, I had an agent, and uh, he said uh, he drank uh, extra dry martinis with, a, yeah, with an olive. Uh, and uh, I tasted it. I said, God, this is awful. And he said, uh, it's an acquired taste. Hmm. <laughs> I acquired it. <laughs> uh, um, was it part of, uh, you know, this taste? I don't, I'm not going to dwell too much on this, but I want to ask if, 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 on an artistic level, if you felt you were like sort of trying to have, was it sort of an artistic aesthetic thing where you're trying to get, have altered experience, altered states of mind? Um, yeah, in the beginning, I thought that was really an interesting concept. <laughs> <laughs> you know, unfortunately, uh, yeah. I, well, part of me, uh, it allowed me to do it. Right. You know, I thought that the, the people that I really admired were all drug addicts and alcoholics and uh, mm -hmm. uh, from Rambo to Baudelaire to, you know, uh, Barrymore's to... Right. You know, uh, 
W.C. Fields, <laughs> going Errol Flynn. I mean, on and on yeah. and on. And uh, I just thought that maybe it was part of the territory. Yeah. And all the great Shakespearean actors, I should really go back to them because they were the ones that really got me uh, into like the, you know, yeah. the idea of drinking because they were the stories of them drinking are more famous in their performances. Right. <laughs> back in the 1800s. But, but did, you, did you find that there was an element of truth to the idea that you could, you could tap into some kind of creativity in, in this altered yes. state? Because Kubrick, uh, Stanley Kubrick was asked that when he made um, 2001, which a lot of people said was sort of a trip, trippy movie. And they asked him if he was you know, on drugs when he was making the movie. And he said, of, of course, you know, no, because I couldn't have directed the film then. Yeah, right. No, I agree with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because... Uh, well, when I was directing, I didn't do any. I yeah. mean, you know, that wasn't the truth. Uh, I, you know, it's it's like it's like doors of perception. I think probably you can open that door once and close it. Hmm. You know, you don't have to continue doing it. You know, that's my. You know, I think uh, in the beginning, uh, cocaine seemed to work. You know, in the beginning, alcohol seems to work, especially for people who are shy and who are in the public. Uh, uh, but uh, pretty soon that shit starts controlling your life. It's not yours anymore, and uh, it's a destroyer. Yeah. And uh, I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I can't have a beer or a glass of wine. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I haven't had one in 25 years. I've had no hard narcotics in 25 years. Hmm. Uh, but... Uh, I do love a smoke every once in a while, and, <laughs> and uh, I enjoy Cuban. I know they're illegal. Um, so that, I mean, this was an incredible year for you in 86, uh, because River's Edge came out, um, and then a really definitive performance in David Lynch's film, Blue Velvet. Yeah. Um, so let's look at that, Blue Velvet. You know, David is another, uh, whatever, this crossover. Right. You know, David went to uh, art school in uh, Philadelphia. 
And uh, I just saw him in Paris, actually. He was doing lithographs in the oldest, uh, the oldest lithography studio in, in Paris. It's like 200 years old. It's where Giacometti and where uh, Picasso did their, uh, their printing. And he was there all alone uh, hmm. in a blue apron doing his thing. But uh, he's wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful to work with. Uh, uh, and you told you got a hold of the script before, and you, you is it true you told him that you are Frank Booth? Well, he cast <laughs> me. He cast me in the movie, never having met me. Hmm. And so I called him in uh, North Carolina, hmm. and I said, uh, and he was having lunch actually with Isabella Rossellini and Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Dern. And uh, I told him that uh, he hadn't made a mistake, that, uh, that I was Frank Booth. <laughs> and, uh, it was going to be good. So he went back to the table, and he said, uh, I just talked to Dennis Hopper, and, uh, and he said he was Frank Booth, and I'm sure that's very good for the movie, but I don't know how we'll ever have lunch with him. <laughs> <laughs> but very honestly, David doesn't really have lunch. David goes and meditates. Hmm. He meditates through his lunch. Hmm. And the first day that we did, uh, I never had met Isabella either. I met them on the set. And uh, we did the scene where I come in and demand, my, where you first see me in the picture, where I demand my bourbon and I proceed to, like, uh, uh, Kyle's in the closet right. and uh, proceed to uh, have sex or whatever that is I do to her. Yeah, the scissors it's and the blue velvet. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. But that was our first day of work. Wow, that scene? Never having met before. Hmm. That's an icebreaker. It was great. <laughs> it was great. Wow. It's really great. So he had been meditating since, because he, he uh, just wrote a book about meditation, but he had been doing that. He was doing it then. Wow. Um, so the he was also like a school mom, I mean, more like a Boy Scout leader. Yeah, excuse me, <laughs> because uh, he would say, "Now, when you say that line, right?" And I said, "Well, that that line says, uh, you know, go fuck yourself." And he says, "Yes, yes, I know, but when you say that line, he wouldn't. He wrote the script, and he wouldn't say fuck or any oh, okay. other word. He would go, <laughs> you know." <laughs> So this is a guy who meditates, but right. wow. Okay. <laughs> right. He's got some strange people out there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Frank Booth, wow. <laughs> Scary. And, and so uh, just to, to um, finish the year, we, we had, do have a scene from Hoosiers, which is a very different kind of movie. It's uh, a, I mean, a movie that you yeah. uh, got an Oscar nomination for and... Um, Anyhow, let's, just, let's look at that. So change the pace from Blue Velvet. But. Immediately after. Yeah. No school this small has ever been in the state championship. I know. I was coached for a while. I won a big game for them. I was coaching the last two minutes. I took them right down to the wire. I run the picket fence on them, and we won. And my son, my son, he's on. Uh, how you doing, Dad? <laughs> Conquering here, I I heard the game right there on that that little Philco, and uh, I heard old, old Ollie dribble on his foot and then make that charity shot, and, and I I started balling, and they br- they bring the white coats in here and they they put a jacket on me. Um, I was feeling so good I didn't even mind too much. 
You doing good? Well, I feel real empty inside. And, uh, I have some bad visions. Son, the other night. No, it don't matter, Dad. You're gonna get better. Couple of months when you get out of here, we're gonna get a house. Both of us. Son. Oh, I wish I could be there. I'll be thinking of you. Son. Keep there, bud. Anyway, I'll tell you one thing. No school as small has ever been in the state championship. a bit about your approach to your craft. We just saw three performances back to back to back that are, that, um, where you just seem to like totally inhabit the character. The, the acting s- seems effortless, but it's obviously not. Uh, what do you want to know? I guess how you do it. <laughs> if you get to, no, I, I, or or you what, know, I mean, um, um, how... Well, they're all three different people. Yeah. Right? Three different parts. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that you draw... I mean, this sort of idea of drawing on personal experiences... Well, you know, uh, like, you know, know... I mean, Strasbourg, you know, you, you work with your senses, your smell, your taste, your hearing, your seeing, and your touch, and, and you do a lot of sense memories, and you get yourself so jacked up that all your senses are really out of whack, okay? You don't need alcohol or drugs to do it, <laughs> but uh, you can fall in, unfortunately, to that pattern. But... Uh, but you do that, and then you learn to do emotional memories, and you, and, you know. So, uh, but but Strasberg said, after five years of working, unless you really find yourself having problems, you shouldn't have to go back mm-hmm. to do doing those things. You should read the script, and your first impression of the script should be the right should be should be the right one. After that, you're only intellectualizing. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I believe that. Also, I believe that if you're, if you're doing a novel, don't read the novel. You're not doing a novel. You're doing a screenplay right. because you're going to like want to take a lot of stuff and, you know, it's crazy. So, like, you know, stick with that. And, and, and you know, every part has different qualities. Uh, uh, they're about different things. So it's really, uh, it's really finding... Uh, it's finding uh, 
Well, that's indefinable. I, I don't know where to yeah, go. But from and there. is it a matter of finding yeah. it for yourself? Like, how important is the is the director actor relationship to somebody who's so experienced? Who's, well, who's well, the, I mean, a director to me is is uh, I mean, the best directors are the one who set up a very comfortable situation for you and and allow you to do your work mm-hmm. under their imaginary given circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. Uh, when I did Elegy with Sir Ben Kingsley, we didn't. Uh, we didn't discuss this scene and sit around right. talking. Uh, we, our first scene in the movie was actually our first scene that we shot. And uh, we sat down and started doing the lines. And by the third take, we'd already printed that and we were right. gone. Right. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, and it was, just, we'd never met before, really. We'd met a couple of times. I'd shook his hand at a couple of parties, but I'd never even spoken to him. And yeah. it was as if we'd known each other for 40 years. Uh, and it was immediate. And he lives in the moment, and it's yeah. a moment-to-moment reality with him. And he gives yeah. and takes, and it's real. And uh, yeah. and if you live with that kind of actor, what a wonderful day it is, you know. <laughs> so you'll and, you, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, so like the character with the character in Elegy, I think probably I didn't think that I had to do a lot of things. I thought that I really could be a professor in a university, and I really could, you know, be a poet and run the Nobel prize i wasn't gonna it wasn't a stretch for me i know that's maybe too much ego but it was, didn't i didn't think that i had to change too much to play that part yeah. whereas frank booth is a whole nother thing i mean i'm walking differently and also a shooter in in, in hoosiers actually all three of those characters are physically different mm-hmm. i mean they're physically different mm-hmm. and then uh, but um uh, I mean, you know, I, Dean Stockwell, I was talking to Dean the other day up in Taos, New Mexico. He's been an actor since he was four years old. He was in Anchors Away, you know, with, uh, same with Frank Sinatra, right. Anchors Away, when he was four. <laughs> so uh, I said something to him about something, and he said, well, I hope so. We're professional actors. Yeah. Meaning, by this time, we should really know how to do that. I, yeah. I, you know, do the, do the, um, <laughs> after, yeah, 300 yeah. films and TV shows. Uh, right. But the physical things that you talk about, like the different walk or the different way you physically behave, does that flow out of... Do you work from the outside in? Some actors like find those physical things first, and then that I'll helps tell you, them. a lot of things have to do with who you're working with mm-hmm. as an actor, what the other actor is, is up to. Because, you know, sometimes you, you need to, like the scene with, the scene in Easy Rider. I wanted Peter to say the stuff that I had to say in that scene. Hmm. It works out perfectly this way. It's much better. Yeah. But he, he refused to say it. He didn't want to shoot the scene. So, you know, uh, and uh, we blew it, is what he, you know, which is, uh, you know, really good. And it works perfectly. But I wanted him to tell about how we blew it that being criminals and going against the society and doing things like that, that that wasn't being an American, man. And like you either should change the laws or whatever. I wanted to get into more of that kind of thing there, which is a good thing I didn't because it's preachy and so on. He said, I refuse to do that and so on. This movie's (laughs) over. I'm the producer. I said, well, just we need this scene, Peter. Anyway, it's in the picture, but... it has a lot to do with who you're working with as an actor. If you want the scene to be good, then you're, you, you sometimes have to compromise and or do various things to make it work. You know? uh, I don't know where I'm coming from with this. Mm-hmm. but uh, Beyond that, uh, 
when you're working with somebody like Sir Ben Kingsley or some really, uh, you know, some wonderful actors, uh, things become a lot easier. Yeah, I guess one of the probably one of the best compliments you could get as an actor is something I read in a review of Allergy, which is that, oh, this is probably what Dan, what he's like in real life, like the idea that. That's cool. I read one that said, yeah. uh, <laughs> "Why would you like, take a, a an ex biker and make a poet out of him?" <laughs> 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 well, let's okay. So, so uh, we'll we'll see now why you would do that because uh, let, we have a scene from Elegy, which is um, an adaptation of a novella by Philip Roth, which um, mm-hmm. I guess you didn't read. You did, did, did you avoid reading it before then? The Dying Animal, I didn't read. Just two, okay. I hear it's very different, by the way. Yeah. So um, let's see this moment from the film with Ben Kingsley. Why did you take her to the prom? I don't get it. This girl is, she's a throwback to a completely different time. She has to be wooed. I thought we were talking about sex. I... You know, for a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, sometimes you display a remarkable lack of imagination. That's why they gave me the prize. Don't tell me you, 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 you've never been through the process talking the talk. That's why I have a family, for Christ's sake. I talk to them. Maybe you should get married again. George! <laughs> Bifurcate your requirements. You know, talk the talk with your wife if you feel like it. Go to the museums, look at all the goyas that you want. But keep the sex part just for sex. All right. Do you really still talk to your wife, George? Uh-huh. One or oh 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 oh. <laughs> I'm not hitting that. <laughs> yeah. I really like this movie. This yeah. this movie's uh, Isabella Couchette, uh, this uh, young uh, Spanish woman who directed it. She does her own cinematography. She puts a camera on a bungee cord, and hmm. and she's wonderful. She makes such a comfortable situation. And uh, there isn't one bad performance in this movie, in my opinion. There are only about six or seven of us in the film. And uh, it's just a wonderful Philip Roth uh, from a Philip Roth novel, The Dying Animal. But uh, it's a beautiful film. It really is. Uh, and it, it, ha- it does have that flavor of just being sort of captured, um, the, the look of the film and the way it's directed, where, yeah. where it's just like a captured moment. Yeah. Um, and has- it's so poignant. I mean, mm-hmm. the male and female relationship is so uh, vulnerable, and, uh, mm-hmm. and it's comic, and it's tragic, and it's strong. It's beautiful, beautiful film. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, I, I wanted to. Um, well, we mentioned this art, this exhibition that's up at the Cinémathèque Française. It's actually up now. If any of you can go to Paris, I recommend that you go see this. And um, it's, a, it's a combination of a big retrospective of your work, your um, your films, television work, but it's also your artwork and your and work you've collected and your photographs and artifacts. So I, I thought we could just. Um, we have a little slideshow with some images from the exhibition, and if you could maybe um, talk us through it a bit. So what if, I don't know if we're ready with the PowerPoint. We have, um, here we go. So this is the well, it's well, a poster. The poster for the show. And you have the motorcycle. Is, is the, is and it, the yeah. new Hollywood, I think that's what it says. Yes. Um, and you, you have the, the um, motorcycle on display, the Captain America motorcycle. There, there's, there's an Italian... Uh, 
Yeah, the very good copy. The originals were destroyed. Right. <laughs> okay, so let's There's go to... There's a the... lot around that say they are. Okay, so this is actually a... Um... Within a man of light, there's only light. Within a man of darkness, there's only darkness. It's a self-portrait. Right. Light box. Photograph, not paint. That I made, you know, sometime yeah. digital, that I made yeah. quite a while ago, about 10 years ago. Yeah. Maybe longer. Hmm. Okay. Well, and the next one is a collage. That's, uh, that's, that's a photograph, which I actually did here in New York, and it's six foot by four foot. Uh, I think it's, it's called. Uh, yeah, UFOs and... New York UFO, I think it's yeah, called. Religion. Uh, this is just a photograph. You've, you've done collage work as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, these first slides are all your artwork, so I think we have a paint. Let's go to the next one. That's a big billboard. That's 22 feet by, uh, let's see, 16 feet by 22 wow. feet. Uh, it's from a photograph that I took, a black and white photograph that I took in the 60s. In a billboard, it was one of those turning uh, billboards, and uh, uh, so I decided I wanted to make it into color, and I make it into a billboard. So uh, it was for Clairol and different color hair. So I made the lips different colors, thinking <laughs> maybe it was for lipstick. Mm. Okay, and uh, then I think we have a painting next. <laughs> and uh, go ahead, yeah. Well, that's a, that's an early painting that uh, I've never shown anybody. I mean, I let. I let the French go into my uh, house, and they did three and a half years of research. They, they pulled out things that, well, I've never shown this. It's a painting of mine from uh, about uh, 20 years ago, something like that. Okay. Next one. Okay, this is. That's me directing yeah, Easy set, Rider. Right. <laughs> okay. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's Robert Walker. Mm-hmm. Okay. And go ahead. And this is Warhol. That's uh, yeah. That's Andy's uh, portrait that he did. I was. Uh, this is from the last movie, actually, uh, a film that I directed and made in Peru. And uh, Jim Meeker, a friend of mine from Texas, uh, had me send him this, and he had gave it to Andy to have it made so, uh, for the Bass family. The Bass family bought five of these in Texas. The last movie is is a great film that was made. It was made after Easy Rider, I think, made in seventy one. But it was a you had worked, prepared it, or had it in mind to make for a long time. Well, Stuart Stern uh, uh, wrote the screenplay, and uh, I wrote the story with him. Yeah, uh, yeah I'd wanted to make it as my first film, and uh, uh, I couldn't get financing. So as soon as I made Easy Rider, I went and made this immediately. Right. And uh, I ended up in Peru doing it in Peru because uh, I, they wouldn't let me shoot. I'd written it about Mexico, but uh, they uh, they wanted to give me a censor on the set, and I couldn't uh, deal with that. So I went to Peru. Hmm. <laughs> okay, next one. <laughs> That's Apocalypse a, a, Now. I think this is just a still from uh, from the actual film from Apocalypse yeah. Now. Yeah. And I think there's one more. That's uh, Bob Dylan and I. Yeah. That's a movie I directed called Backtrack with Jodie Foster. And, right. Uh, yeah. And uh, and Dylan did actually write a song for you for Easy Rider, right? I mean, you you. Well, he wrote uh, yeah. At the end, uh, the river flows. It flows to the sea. Wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to use uh, it's all right, Ma. I'm only bleeding it. Uh, continue it on. And and uh, he said no here. 
give this to McGuinn and have him put some music to it. He'll know what to do. <laughs> and he wrote, he wrote the lyrics and gave it to me. Okay. And is that it? I think, is there one more? Or is that the last? Okay, there we go. Thank you. So, um, and McGuinn made a lot of money, <laughs> <laughs> actually, of the Ballad of Easy Rider. <laughs> Uh, you, one of the things you did this year, you, you, you kind of got in the news, I guess, during the um, campaign, during the election, um, as a um, sort of, I guess, a large group of registered Republicans who voted for Obama. Could you talk about were that? There, were there a large group? I think there were. <laughs> Apparently there were, but, but um, could you talk about that? I well, guess like, I was know, surprised I, at first. I, uh, I was, during... Uh, yeah. During the Reagan period, uh, I wasn't a great fan of Reagan's. I, I didn't think he was that great an actor, but, uh, you know. <laughs> but I, I read Thomas Jefferson during that period, and, and uh, Jefferson said if one party's in power more than 20 years, it's a citizen's responsibility to, to make sure the other party gets in if you're going to have a democracy or a republic. So uh, that was gnawing on my mind. So anyway, I voted at that time republic. And I was the first time in my family that anybody had ever done that. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and I stayed with, uh, I stayed with them till now. Hmm. And uh, I couldn't really do that anymore. And I felt it was my responsibility. And I think Obama's incredible. I, mm -hmm. I like him as a person. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting him. Uh, you share some I had a great meeting with him, actually. Uh -huh. My wife is a big supporter. Mm -hmm. And so I met him when he just became senator in Washington. And then, uh, and then we went to the inaugurate when he announced, uh, when he announced that he was going to run for president. Mm -hmm. And uh, that morning, uh, he had announced that he was going to be uh, run for president uh, at uh, Independence, where uh, uh, Lincoln had uh, announced... Oh, yeah, Springfield. Springfield. Yeah. Springfield. At Springfield, where uh, Lincoln had announced he was going to run for president. And then he went to, and that was about 5,000 people. Then he spoke in front of about 8,000 in Chicago, and I saw that. And then uh, we went to another place where he spoke in front of about 300 people, and I saw that. And then suddenly I was on an elevator with him, and uh, I was standing, uh, you know, right next to him, and it was very crowded. We were all pushed in together. And he turned to me and he said, you know, Dennis, I've been really remiss. Uh, you know, uh, I know you lost your mother a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. I also know that your mother was from Kansas and my mother's from Kansas, and I know what it's like to lose a mother. And I should have really, I should have really uh, mm. gotten in touch with you before this. Mm. But I thought that the man had the presence of mind yeah. in all this to like have some yeah. sort of human connection with the person standing next to him was really uh, very clear, amazing. Uh, yeah. Amazing, man. And obviously it uh, got to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got your vote. So, uh, but uh, yeah. And I just hope, uh, you know, we're in a really hard time right now. So I just uh, hope everything goes well. And I'm sure it will. <laughs> okay. On that tenuous optimistic note, I, I guess we'll um, end. But um, okay. thanks so much for being here. And congratulations on LG and on, on all of your great work. Well, thank you. Thank okay. you for doing this. Okay, thanks a lot.
Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.